Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Dan, you have been quite a central figure in some very exciting musical festival that is happening in Ilkley. So Ilkley is a little village in Yorkshire, but like, you know, all good English series, Ilkley's got a lot of character and a lot of interesting things happen. A lot of character and a lot of characters, that's for sure. And we're in a little bit of an Ilkley season at the moment here on We Not Me, having seen Andy last week, our guest this week as well, which we'll get on to. But yes, Ilkley Live came out of covid actually because we weren't allowed to there was a time when one of the lockdowns was you can only see one person outside and be distanced by two meters i can't remember what the exact rules were but anyway i ended up doing my band practice with my friend uh the bass player greg and we would play in my garden and we had a few people sort of standing around the gate and having a peer in and have a listen which was but they, they, I suspect they didn't have very good musical taste, to be honest. They're very bored. And perhaps. yeah, exactly. It was going <laughs> lots Ooh, of something's lots happening. Lots of isolation. <laughs> but anyway, so so out of that, Ilkley Live was born. It's a it's a community music festival, basically that anyone can play in their own garden, and anyone. Then the audience, we publish the we publish the the, the program, and anyway, you can walk from one to another and watch different different musical acts. And we had about nine i think last year we had 20 this year so in the second year it's getting quite big so it's quite a decent number of of performers it was absolutely wonderful and the sun shone on us and all was well it's such a democratizing of sort of of music and that spirit you know it's you're not having to pay for it it's yeah. bringing out everyone's it, talent lovely, and you know ilkley's a rich community so that yeah, so there would be yeah. a lot of folks we're, there we're, that are great artists and actually um, it's lovely because actually just with that the idea is to be very about much about the community it's the community's thing and that my one of my favorite moments this year was i saw the day before someone posted one of the bands posted they were going to play in their garden and they were actually going to allow they had other bands playing after them so they were hosting some other acts and they built a stage they actually <laughs> built it was sort of okay then and it was incredible absolutely incredible so you know that's just something that just happened and people took the initiative to do it so good on them and the band the finishers were amazing and that word initiative that's my experience of ilkley the, the other eye is that there's a lot of people there that do take that initiative and that's that's becky is our guest today tell us a little bit about her and how you know her so I came across Becky when, as part of her clean bathing water status campaign um, for the river. She'll t- tell us all about it. She has a lot to say about how she achieved this in Britain, a, you know, a UK first of achieving um, bathing water status. But she also has her professional career, both of which really play into this we not me thinking, which is how do you get groups of people to achieve something different? So really looking forward to hearing Becky. Let's go over there now. Becky, it's an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're a love to invite me. <laughs> um, Becky, well, let's get stuck in. How? Um, talk to us about you a little bit. How did you get to this place today? Well, Dan, I mean, no one says no to Dan. So that's how I got here. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I'm, uh, I'm an old lady, Dan. I'm sort of grumpy of Ilkley, the world. Um, so I am mostly frustrated, agitated, 
and generally hacked off. And that's mostly around things that are about social justice, really. So I'm a professor in health systems innovation, but that's because nobody could bear me to be in a real job in the NHS. So I sit alongside it, um, poking and prodding and nurturing and supporting and being a good friend, but also a bit of a challenger. And um, I do a bit of the same in Ilkley, to be honest, where we live. So I'm a lover of all things that are about um, the resilience, the the innate talent, the interests, the effort that people and communities can put into spaces and um, how do we stop the old world, the feudal, hierarchical, you know, how do we stop that biting back and stamping them out, oh, really? What a strong start. I've now realised <laughs> why you two get on so well. <laughs> what a strong start. That's amazing. I must say, Becky, I've seen a film of you addressing a conference and not giving the audience any uh, any slack, which I yeah, I could see all your introduction definitely paid off there. I could see it. So wonderful to have you on the show, and I can see in what you're saying, absolutely, right in the heart of We Not Me. How do we help humans connect to get stuff done? So we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But before that, we're going to torture you with the conversation starter card game. So I'm going to choose a starter card at random, and I'll ask it when I've, when I've found I'm just having a bit of a shuffle here. Oh, here we go. My first paid job was... Oh, first paid job was um, actually... I. I was thinking I was, a, was I actually working? I think I had two jobs at once. I was a student nurse, but you never, never earned any money being a student nurse. So I um, was also strawberry picking, sort of piecework in the fields. And I was incredibly motivated by how much money I could make from picking strawberries at a vast rate of knots. I would not talk to anybody. I was just pounding through for hours on in the sun to earn my little bit of money. So I could live off something a bit more than brown flakes the following week as a student nurse. I bet the strawberry growers are still talking about the Malby years. Yeah, <laughs> those are great harvests. The Malby season. Ten, ten, yeah. Very productive. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, well, okay, that takes us right back to the very start. But let's let's come back to the present, Becky. Tell us about what a little bit you touched on these things. Take us into your world a little bit. Why don't we get get? I think there's a lot here to unpack. So, why don't we why don't we start with your health systems work? What does what does that actually look like, and this relationship you have with the with health fraternity and uh, sorority? So, I'm um, a few things that I think really matter to people and really work when you're trying to do change work but they're not things that those who've got historical positional power tend to like really but if you believe that the system whatever the system is doing exactly what it's designed to do then you know when you're trying to get a gp appointment and you can't that isn't by accident and you know holding your hands up and go oh it's all a bit difficult and we can't do anything about it you actually can so my job, I guess, is to sit alongside the NHS and help it understand why what's happening isn't really in its own hands. And I absolutely love general practice. Front door of the NHS, if you can't get that right, heaven help us all. And they're fabulous people running, you know, little businesses, you know, completely happy talking about fungal toenails or major heart attacks. God bless them. It's brilliant that they will do that day in, day out. And we don't give them anywhere near enough credit for what they sit through every day. And so what they'll say is, what they're being rewarded for and paid to do is to offer appointments. The thing about an appointment system is whoever shouts loudest can get an appointment. 
but there's a load of people that can't or don't know how to or don't have the capacity to. And so it generates a level of unfairness. And because if you open a door and say, we've got slots, then people will all sign up as fast as they can. And particularly if there are a minimum amount of slots, because you'll be worried you won't get a slot tomorrow. So I'll bag my slot today, even if I'm not too worried about it, if I'm not too sure what it is, because it might, I might not get a slot tomorrow. So it creates demand, actually. Some of you will know this from any work you've ever done on quality. So when we show GPs, you know, you, do you know who's coming through your door? Well, people that need us. I said, okay, so are those people people with long COVID? Yep, definitely those. Are they people on waiting lists who can't get, you know, who are deteriorating? Oh, it's definitely those. People with long-term COVID. Oh, it's definitely those. Is it young kids, you know, who've suffered during the pandemic and mental health? Yeah, definitely those. So at the moment, we're offering 20% more appointments than we were offering pre-pandemic, but it's still not enough. But actually, nobody knows what we're offering them for because it's definitely all those things. I said, well, how much? Don't know. Really? Okay, you don't know. Why don't you know? So the NHS is desperately underinvested in general practice, understanding what's going on in general practice. And in the good old days, an appointment system worked because it wasn't, the demand wasn't quite as bad as it is now. And there were more GPs. And, uh, and there's sort of, there was, uh, it was clearer what general practice was for. So when we show GPs, who's coming through the door, i.e. nobody between the age of seven and 24. Um, and they go, oh, well, we thought we were seeing lots of young people. So it turns out you're not seeing any of them. So have they not got any health needs? No, they've got lots. Well, where do you think they're going? No idea. <laughs> and then they're horrified, bless them. They're absolutely horrified because they have no idea. And then you say, so is your job to provide primary care or to provide an appointment system? So that's how we work, which is we, we help people See what's really going on, not the fantasy of what's going on. We bring a sort of evidence base to it. We challenge folks and then say, so how you've designed the system is giving some people, and it's primarily older people, a lot of chances to turn up at your practice. But if they're having to turn up so much, does that mean that you're not actually meeting their needs? Because how many times do we have to be seen? <laughs> so it, it, it starts whole lots of conversations and we're not, judging and we're not blaming and we're not shaming. We're just saying, why is it like this? And is this what you came in to do as a GP or a nurse in primary care? What is it you wanted to do? Because what you're doing now isn't fair. And that usually gets people to think, and it's hard work, isn't it? But it helps them think about how do you do it better? And what's the response, Becky, from GPs? Are they, are they generally, do they have the headspace to be able to think about above their business as well as in their business as such? Well, they do. They don't. But um, if they carry on doing this, they'll be, they're so exhausted. Honestly, they're so exhausted. So, you know, it's not uncommon to have GPs in tears when we're going through this stuff because they've come in to do something. It's not, they're not doing it, but they're also not, nothing's working for anybody, including, including them. And actually, there is also, there's very little background support to general practice. So, you know, most corporates in this country run at 9% of their costs are management costs and hospitals, it's like 4%. In general practice, it's under 1%. So they're also doing a load of stuff that is not what GPs and nurses and receptionists should be doing. So we do help them say no to some stuff and say, do you really, you know, you, it, let's just not do that for a bit. Give me an hour, just an hour of your time. 
and let's have a bit of a think. And of course, with an hour looking at young people and mental health, they could probably think about reaching out to schools to find out what they want. And then, of course, it, they don't have to convene everything. There's lots of other people in the system interested in young people's mental health. So well, let's get them together and say, well, whose job is what? What can we do together? And you're better off doing it together, a bit like this theme of what we're talking about. Dan, you're better off doing it together than doing it all on your own. You can't fix this on your own as a GP, but you can do it together with schools and mental health services and families and your social prescribers. So find better solutions together is, um, and is what we're trying how, to do. Where does that that human connection, the sort of, yeah, bringing people together to solve this problem, where does that work well? And where, and equally, where, where do you see the human factor, the connection factor failing? Certainly in primary care, you get paid for numbers of people you see. And that does not fit this model. So if you're trying back to our young folks, you know, they don't really want to come into GP appointments. They might want to do something very different, but that wouldn't count in the same way. So then you don't get paid in the same way. So the the design the payment system for a lot of NHS work is activity, which is not relational. So it's getting people through things. And that means, you know, we might overtreat some things. We might be offering too many operations to older people, probably not great for them, um, certainly for their long-term health. So overall, we're in a sort of you might know this sort of tailorist model, of mechanistic machine model of design. The treasury is in that mode completely. I would say the health department is not in that mode, but the treasury is absolutely in that mode. You know, they're all idiots. Tell them what to do. Make them do it. Um, tell them off if they don't do it. With royal payments if they don't do it. And we know better. And it, it, they really don't. <laughs> so it doesn't support collaborative, innovative models. And most people on the front line working in primary care, you know, back to what you're seeing on a daily basis, which is, you know, people in pain and people suffering, but also people with sore throats and kids that are being bullied at school and fungal toenails. You're not necessarily an innovator in that space because your day job is to do this really lovely intimate work with folks. And it isn't to come up with wacky new solutions to how we organise that work. And is that any impact on like the number of GPs coming into the system? I mean, are GPs being turned off by the prospect of this at times? Yeah, so um, I think the relent at the moment, you know, it's very hard for primary care because we haven't got anywhere else. So you, you sort of choice, front door of the NHS is primary care or A&E. You call an ambulance, the ambulance has only got that choice. The ambulances have been absolutely brilliant because they are managing to help people stay at home more than they ever were. So you're sort of seeing in Yorkshire here, about before the pandemic, about 10% of people the ambulance saw, they managed to keep at home. You know, they do fantastic stuff, paramedics, don't they? Now it's 30%. It's brilliant. But we've still got ambulances wrapped up outside hospitals with old ladies waiting to have a wee and a drink. And it's just outrageous, really. So we've got a real problem about where do people go? We don't have urgent care centres anymore. We don't have some of the background stuff that would help the bullying, kids, shore starts, et cetera. So a lot of that's been stripped out. So the front door's very small. Um, and uh, and certainly in primary care, the demand is post-pandemic, during pandemic, through the roof. And we've got a lot of COVID sickness again. So you've got repeated bouts of sickness in your staff. 
which means that people really, really, whilst they all say go to work with COVID, you can't if you're working with vulnerable people. You just can't. So we're asset stripped anyway. We were, we've got a workforce crisis that we don't have enough people coming through and a lot of people retiring. We, we can't hang on to people because they've changed the pension rules. So it's of no benefit to you to stay in the job as a GP. You need to retire as early as you can because your pension, it really affects your pension payments and we haven't got governments prepared to address that. So the, it's an absolute storm at the moment. And it's, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, for some of our listeners will be listening from across the world. So some will be in the US, some will be in Australia. Is this something that you're seeing across as a global phenomenon or is this something just happening in England alone? There's a mixture. So obviously other people have got different COVID responses, which help in other places. Um, so we, we are very lackadaisical <laughs> compared to other countries. Um, but uh, there's been better workforce planning. And, you know, the amount of money we spend per head in this country is, you know, we're way down compared to many other countries. So we're, we're tipping into third world levels of, of payments and provision. So whilst I keep saying they're putting more money in the NHS, it's difficult. Um, I wouldn't say so. So there's lots, of, there's lots of things that don't help. But I, you know, you look at our childhood poverty levels. So if you... It's not just the workforce of the NHS. It's the fundamental underlying levels of poverty in this country, which are shocking. And that's driving up a demand that is, that there's nowhere else for people to go. There's not social care. So that's our biggest issue. So I think, are we seeing the same levels of inequalities and poverty in other countries, other first world countries? We, you know, we do in the States, not so much in Australia. So it depends how we, but it sounds like it, really. a creaking, creaking system, doesn't it? When you layer it up like that, you're seeing, you know, the you started this conversation looking at appointments, but you very quickly dial it back. It's a it's a systemic challenge on multiple fronts. But it's not impossible. So I don't want me to think it's impossible. It's not impossible. Um, we could do with, I guess, you know, some slightly less judgmental models. Yeah, you know, we've got we've got the most centralized democracy in the world. You know, it's feudal almost. And so local solutions for local people is very hard to enact in this country. But where we do, and actually where 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 primary care, where general practice works collaboratively with the other parts of the system and asks for help from local communities, it, you know, it can really radically change this. So we can liberate phenomenal resources within general practice by going through their appointment system and helping them design it proactively based on need rather than reactive. The problem is it doesn't get them the money. So, and, and, and most GPs will take the hit. Honestly, they'll take the hit because they, they're not, you know, they're not all out for the dollar that people think they are. So I find that, you know, clinical professionals and, and people that work in health services are there because they really, really care about people and health. And so they will, at a local level, do the right thing. It's a picture of such pressure. I mean, even not working in, G in a primary care practice, I'm feeling a slight sense of uh, sense of that myself now, just hearing it through. But it sounds like there are some just some ways through. But I'm just going to change gears a little bit, Becky. And I'm trying to do a nifty little segue now that after a very hard day's work in a GP's practice, I'm sure people would like to go for a little swim in a river. And I'm going to just segue into your other life, if that's okay. Just if we talk about some other challenges. So talk to me about your work with bathing water status, which is certainly where I 
came across you first? So it sort of started with a friend of mine saying, we are reporting you know, raw sewage being dumped in the river on a regular basis and no one's doing anything. And I went, you what? What do you mean? I said, we all pay for our sewage to be, you what? I mean, all those kids, local kids, they'll paddle and play and swim down there. We had no idea and it turned out that our local water company is throwing raw sewage into the river a third of the year and no one knew and everyone's paying their bills. So that was the outrage, which was, what are we be all being taken for a ride here? You know, I, I do my bit as a little citizen here. I pay my bills honourably. I don't not pay because you're not doing it. So I pay my bills. And then you take the money and what you do with it. It turns out you give it to your shareholders. Thanks. I can't, you know, so you've got a nice yacht in can and I live in a little terrace in Oakley. And that doesn't feel right to me. And we followed similar to the other, to the, to say with the GP stuff, which is, you know, the phrase is you can't get there from not here. Living in a fantasy about what's really going on doesn't help you work out what you should do. So we're always trying to find out with all the, I'm always trying to find out with all these processes, what's really going on around here. And you could, you know, if you're into the theories, you could look at a bit of the Otto Sharma leading from the emerging future, or you could look at high fitzes, you know, adaptive leadership, similar. They all do the similar thing, which is what's really going on around here? Who cares about it? How do you connect people to it? And then how do you, with high fits, how do you turn the heat up? And when I was telling you about GP practices and just showing them the data, often that's enough to say, did you know what's going on? And they go, whoo! And so we thought thought the same would happen with the river, but it turns out with very big corporates, they have broad shoulders and thick skins. They're not at all horrified by what they're doing. Our lovely GPs are really horrified. Corporates, not at all horrified. No, not by any means of the matter. So what we did was similar, which is that we looked at the data about how polluted the river was being by the water company. And then it turns out that the regulatory body said, no, the water is very good quality. I would swim in it and drink it. I said, would you really? That's fascinating. Why do you think that? Because we measure these few things. I said, they're not all the things you should measure, are they? They're all the things that we measure. Different answer. Why don't we measure some things? And the nice thing about living in Ilkley, as Dan will tell you, is that there's a lot of talented people here. And it turns out there's a professor of something called diatoms, something that's in rivers, and etc. So we had quite an interesting gang that we managed to get together of very diverse people who care about the community and the quality of the water whether it's people who walk dogs, swim, people who like environmental stuff, fisher folk, the whole works. So we have a very diverse gang and we argue a lot, which is always good. But what we did was set up a citizen science project to test the water in the river. And lo and behold, it is full of crap. And that is (laughs) anybody. And certainly, Mr. Environment Agency, you should not be swallowing it as you swim, because if you did, you'd be really poorly. And so obviously he was lying. As people are, yeah. So we made that very public. And thank goodness for our national media, because we wouldn't be anywhere without it. So we tried doing the rational nice thing, which is turning the heat up by showing them the data privately. And they went, oh, yeah, but we couldn't afford a solution. Really? Okay, I mean, why not? Do you not earn a lot of money? And then we tried holding town meetings, 200 odd people in Ilkley coming together with the agencies. We we run it a bit like a Quaker meeting, sit in circle, don't let them sit at the top with their PowerPoints, that'd be a disaster. 
sit in the middle because they're accountable to us. So demonstrate their accountability, demonstrate us as consumers, hard in a monopoly because you can't take your money anywhere else. And then just to make it okay and that we wanted it to be properly accountable, invite Look North, which is our local radio TV station. So they film these people. And so we did that because then it's always on record and then we have records of what everybody says. And that works for a while. So that got them going because their shareholders don't like that sort of publicity. And then they get a bit immune to it and you have to think of something else. So the, this one has been harder, in many, much harder than the NHS in many ways. Harder because it, the willingness to engage with the issues for the benefit of consumers is nowhere near as strong as the need to meet shareholder value. And that's, it's overwhelming, you know, so our water company is owned by the Bank of Singapore, Deutsche Bank, Australian Pension Fund. And of course, the idea of a private company is they put money in on a much longer, they could borrow for a much longer term and they obviously have to pay interest on their borrowings, but it's a lower interest rate to put in the infrastructure. But what we found over the course of our investigating what's really happening around here is not only is loads of pollution in the river directly related to sewage, which is horrific and kids don't know that, and families still don't know that, ilkly as they paddle and play because no one will put signs up to say because they won't own the problem. But not only that, but the investment, the money to the money they borrowed, which was huge, was not going into infrastructure. So they were borrowing money to pay dividends. And that became, you know, so we're beginning to surface something huge here. So suddenly, little Ilkley, hello, <laughs> we thought we were just doing this. Turns out we're taking on all the water companies in the country, along with others. The poo really did hit the fan, I think, at that point. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. We've got a legal team, a comms, we're supporting 50 other campaign groups. But we have got, we have now got, uh, I suppose, a whole national program to reduce the pollution by water companies. I think it'll take, well, I'll be dead. You know, it'll, it's going to take 30 to 50 years, but there, there is, there are plans going in to do that now. But this is, so, so the business, they call this, I don't know if it's the same in England, but they call it a rort. The whole thing's a rort. So what, it's what very it means, Australian, you know, that. I love very, it. Very, yeah, it's not a root, <laughs> it's a rort. And, and so what it looks like on the front of it is not really where the money's going. You've got to follow the money, which is exactly what you did in that. So, again, a, quite an adaptive, but quite dangerous because you would have literally got into some deep and dirty water, you know, doing that. And when people are protecting their profits, that, yeah. you know, that could become pretty murky and pretty Pretty I dangerous sometimes. For some of the folks that we, so we work with the Financial Times, they do all the work on the dividend. You know, they Because we, we haven't got the expertise for this. So you've got to find partners and collaborators of people that are interested. And then you've got to find people that are in for the long haul. So the lovely surface against sewage, a whole campaign group, you know, they've got, they're in it for the long haul. You've got to find folks, I think. But then it gives you lovely moments, like, you know, having a few drinks with Fergal Sharkey. If any of you remember Absolutely. Because he's a river campaign, it turns out. So that it has hilarious moments to it. And it's and there are moments also, of course, where the best thing to do is to collaborate. You're not always being adversarial. So our getting bathing status for Ilkley, actually, you know, our local walker company supported that because it meant that they could then bid for investments, they could get support. So sometimes you're turning the heat up and Sometimes you're being adversarial and sometimes in helping people, you know, what some people say, I think um, delivering their account, their duty to them, 
delivering their duty to them because that is what their job is. Sometimes you're doing that and sometimes you're helping solve problems together and we're doing a bit of that this afternoon. So we're sometimes in the collaborative space and sometimes in the other space. Yeah, so I've seen I've seen both of those actually, Becky. And it, just thinking about that strange group, that strange coalition you pulled together, multiple interests there. And even though what you're doing, I mean, I have to say, being a resident of the town, I was stunned that people were literally at the council meeting voting to have poo in the river. There are, there are people out there. So it's not a com- amazing. It's not a completely uniform belief that it should be a clean river, but most people are on side. But even when you've got that strong purpose behind you, it's not always easy to unite those groups, is it? How, how do you find that common ground to move forward and not just end up bickering on the edges? You know, you can only go at the pace that people are willing to go at. So even though we might want to go faster on some things, you just can't. So we have quite regular town meetings and we uh, and people are persistently surprised. There's always somebody new there who had no idea. Or, um, or somebody emailed me yesterday because we're trying to get people to stop paying their water bills, a percentage of their water bills in September that relates to the bit of where you're supposed to have your sewage treated. So... I pay in my whole water bill, I pay £150 last year for the sewage treatment bit. And they dumped it in the river a third of the year, so that's 50 quid. Well, that's just one month of bill, so I'll just not pay it for a month because they didn't deliver it. But the pushback is you haven't got that right. That can't be right that they're doing that for a third of the year. That can't be right. I said, it's their data. It's the water company's data. And they agree with us. They just don't put it all over their website. This is not, this, that is not contested. And people can't believe it. They should know you must be wrong. So that you know, you get you've just got to persistently tell the story, persistently find ways of getting people's attention. And storytelling is the best way. We've had some local kids very sick. They're in the local hospital on drips from being in the river and missed their GCSEs. So we've got that in the front page of the Gazette just before this story. So you find you've got to persistently help people understand the problem and of course they don't all agree and of course they don't need to and some people think the best way is to persistently be reporting and that's what they'd rather do or you know everyone's got their own everyone's got their own route you can't be everything to everybody but you do need to take the wealth of people with you so we make sure that our MP is alongside pretty much all the time and when they're not you know we try and meet to discuss our disagreement our local councillors our town councillors so our representatives are briefed all the time. And we brief all the MPs in the country. Every time there's anything environmentally, we project it. So we're, we, you know, you're always watching national local all the time. So you've got to and, and just be completely open and willing to go to, to be challenged and to have the discussions and to go with as much as people will or won't do. Which I think is a, it's a real, it's a real balance between forging ahead for you know for, to get some kind of resolution but not pushing too hard well you can be you can be marginalized the problem is if we became a little sort of weirdy pressure group we are regularly positioned like that but we we try and think who's going to speak on our behalf we try and change the mix of the group we try and have younger as well as older so it's not always me and Karen and so you you persistently jiggling up who's there. Different people turn up to meetings and they don't see the same people all the time. You've got to really think about that because you can become the sort of fixated sewage group. <laughs> My kids are always <laughs> horrified. My tombstone will say, you know, she stopped shit in the river and really they're more proud of what I've done in the end. Just to say, well, I can't believe you're going to go to your grave and that's what everyone's going to remember you for. It's horrendous. 
<laughs> Did you think, Becky, was, when you look back over your life, is this like a theme that runs all the way through? Have you chosen adaptive challenges and you've really wanted to kind of, you know, get cranky enough about it to find a solution? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that, yeah. Some of that's how you're brought up, isn't it? And my dad was a, he won't remember this. He doesn't even remember taking me into the factory, but he built and ran a paper factory, paper making factory. And so when I was a kid, you know, if anything went wrong, even at weekends, he'd go in. And when he went into work, or I'd go in for like, you know, no one knew what to do with me, I'd go in with him on holiday days. And, you know, he first thing he'd do as he got in the morning was he'd go down to the paper mill and he'd sit with the ladies who were doing the, who on the sort of the paper making line. And he'd look at the telemetrics, but he said, so tell me how it feels. And of course, you know, you're not, he said, this is what the telemetrics say, but I want to know how it feels. And they would sit and talk to him about what adjustments they thought needed making, et cetera. And that's where he'd start. And because it was about water and paper, you know, he had a fishing club. He was very worried about what was going into the river. He was thinking about the environment in which the factory was working. So I think that, you know, you see things differently, don't you, when it's like that? See what it's like. And he never, ever saw himself as being special. You know, he was always one of, part of. And I was so proud of the thing he designed and built and celebrated it. And, you know, so I think that was a very interesting, he was quite a, a loner in many ways, but at work, he was a very communal person. So I think, you know, you see something like that and you see what's possible actually, which is when everybody sort of feels it's their business and cares about it, you know, magic happens. I think that's what it taught me. So every time anybody's told me it's not my business, I think, who says? <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> I don't, it absolutely is. Um, Peggy, I'd love to just, uh, you've mentioned, uh, you know, Ron Heifetz and adaptive leadership, uh, adaptive challenges. Could you, I feel that's, that connects this, your worlds, as Pierre just mentioned. Could you just dive in a little bit, just for our listener to talk about that? You clearly have some knowledge, but also deep experience on dealing with this. What is an adaptive challenge? So you think the predictable world is if I do X, Y always happens, you know. So you hope if you went to have your leg chopped off um, down in a hospital, Uh they would do it to the right (laughs) leg. And so there are some things that are absolutely step-by-step. Getting a man on the moon is step-by-step. Digging the channel tunnel, step-by-step. Very complicated. Yorkshire water and our sewage works, I hate to say it, it is step-by-step. It's a predictable challenge. They keep telling me how very complex it is. No, it's not. It's complicated. You just have to open your purse and pay for it. That's the bit you're struggling with. So it's understanding things that are um, tame, linear, deterministic, things that are complicated, but still amenable to predictive interventions and things where you've no idea what will happen. So, you know, like looking after someone with who, who's living with dementia you know, it, it, how do you do that? You know, so what are the solutions to that? No one really knows, and you can't do it without the person that's got dementia either. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I've, they'll be very, why are you, they're quite fat? It's because they've forgotten they've eaten. So what do you need to do? You need to put sticking things on. You need things on the telly. You need phone. You need all sorts of things. So the response is that it's a waterbed world, that if you do X, Y might happen, but A, B, Z will also possibly happen. So you're always thinking about the intended and the unintended consequences, and you're looking for those. So you're always intervening, checking, are we getting where we want to be? So the adaptive challenge with the water is not the solution, which is not an adaptive challenge. The adaptive challenge is the collaborative sets of relationships that have been set up 
that mean it's very hard for anybody to do what they're supposed to do. So, you know, there's this conflicting legislation, which means sometimes what the company's doing is legal and sometimes it's not legal, depending on which one you look at. Those sorts of things, the environment's a bit more complex. So getting the relationships right is complex. We, we, I think we are, we're, we're often in danger, aren't we, of seeing adaptive challenges and and applying simple solutions to them that just uh, that and then they're set and forget as well but they're just not going to work and it sounded like there's some of that in your healthcare work as well so of course people like certainty we're not very good as human beings with too much uncertainty you saw that in the pandemic where the whole world was uncertain and we we lost the plot on most of us on a regular basis so people like certainty and they think certainty is good and actually having something and you're right, you do have to start. You can't sit there and look at it forever. You know, go, oh my God, that's really difficult. So you do have to step into it, but you need to step into it open to change and to adapt rather than set into it with a project plan that you're not going to move from no matter what, because actually that will make things worse. So it's knowing that the certainty is not generated from your project plan. The certainty is generated from the sets of relationships, which means that you'll work at the problem together. And that's the thing that people forget, I think. I don't know about you, Pierre, but I think we couldn't end on a better note than that. That's absolutely the we, not me answer to things. It's been wonderful to hear your thinking, Becky. And I love the outrage that you that you have that drives Keep you as up. well. It's inspiring, Keep I have to say. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute delight. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Of you. I loved how Becky illustrated both the challenges in the health system and the clean water challenges and the link around this adaptive leadership. You know, I think this is something we can all learn from because if you approach a complex problem looking for a simple answer or even approach it with a methodical technical answer, you might even end up making the situation worse. And yet it, it requires a combination of sort of tenacity and enormous amounts of patience <laughs> at the same time. And you could really hear that through a story, I think. And real just deep connection with other humans in the system. That, that, that really comes to it, doesn't it? And it's amazing. Is it, the, we mistake problems for being simple as technical problems and we we just love a simple answer you know i don't know how many times we hear or we've even said they should just do x very rarely can anyone just do anything in this world and it's going to solve the problem there aren't you know the technical problems are easily soluble but solvable but the yeah these are mostly we're facing these adaptive problems it was great to hear becky talk about both of those two and i think that she highlighted some to be frank, some worrying trends in the UK, things that are really going to require humans to come together in a different way to solve them. Yeah. And I don't, and the UK is not on its own. It's, I mean, we've got this problem all over the place. So I don't think it's just, it was just a way to illustrate it. But if you pretend that it's not happening or you try and find a quick fix, that's probably going to exacerbate the situation. We, I think we only looked at the health system through the lens of the GP, there was a, there was a lot of other aspects to that, 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 that adds to the complexity.
hugely it's really complex as you're saying the yeah i think what she said about um you know we pay our bills and that money goes to the shareholders i i, I you know without going on about it too much i honestly see that everywhere now and and i think this crisis we're in you know the cost of living crisis it's caused by that same syndrome um and i, I think you're right humans are going to have to connect differently if we're going to solve this and i'm sure we're we're in for a big reset i think how we run things here's hoping but it's i was just thinking about also this ability to in that system if you view it as an adaptive challenge how you connect with people and the the skills that are required then I'll, I'll tell a couple of quick stories about becky first time i saw becky i was in that circle the quaker meeting group and i was sitting behind the person from yorkshire water and opposite becky and she was holding him to account on some of the facts he was using and oh my word I was just so grateful I wasn't him because I heard the laser eyes were on him and it was just burning. So she really held him to account. Fast forward about two years, we had a meeting, a town meeting with, with the leadership team of Yorkshire Water and on Zoom with the good people of Ilkley who were basically brandishing in a zoom sense torches and pitchforks and oh my word they were marching on the, you know virtually mad. marching very, on. Yeah, it was a, very mad she exactly but she managed to create this space where she said look we need to be polite with everyone we're, we're in this together we're trying to solve this problem she created this space where actually yorkshire water were able to speak we could understand their side of things which was very surprising my mind was changed during that meeting about what position they were in that adaptive challenge requires adaptive leadership you have to be able to flex on all kinds of ways so i think these are things that we can all learn for our own tasks but also if we're going to sort the problems of the world out which are adaptive and require higher levels of connection that we're actually sh than we're showing at the moment absolutely 100 percent agree and i think and i think we should include this in the show notes there's some great work being written by otto shaman so for those people that are listening to this and thinking, oh, I've got some complexity that's sitting in where I'm working, then I think this is a great read. I'd highly recommend it because it just opens your eyes to a different way of being able to harness co collective thinking. But it's a, it's a magical mix between patience and tenacity. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, it's not easy, but some great things have been achieved as a result of it. And it's, it's actually, I was using that um, with a group not long ago and the Otto Sharma thinking and levels of listening and so on. It's very pragmatic, actually, really pragmatic and re just immediately useful. So yeah, we'll put some of the show notes about, about that work as well. But uh, that is it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. Also, please give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. You can also contribute to the show by leaving us a voice note with a question or a comment. Just find the link in the show notes. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.